The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're looking, continuing to look at the topic of miracles. Um, we began last week and I had a 14-page handout. All I did was just consolidate it. And so that, if you got last week's and you have it with you, you don't need what's on the chair there. Uh, but if you weren't here last week or if you forgot your outline or lost it, there's one on the, on the chair over there. Yeah, that's right. So I kind of consolidated, got a little shorter. Um, last week we, we discussed miracles. We talked at length about the difficulties that we have in defining a miracle. The problem uh, comes when we uh, get a firm grasp on the doctrine of providence. We see that God is intensely active in everything that's going on around us all the time. So when something kind of pokes up into the area of miracle is a little hard to define because God's doing things all the time. Remember what Jesus said in John 5, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. So God is always working. And after uh, we had our Acts class last night, I was talking to a few people about, well, is this a miracle? This happened to me or was th- is that a miracle? And it's just, uh, I'm not a miracle referee. I don't really know. If you were encouraged and strengthened in your faith, then praise God. It doesn't really need to be titled properly just as long as God answered your prayer. Let's say somebody was healed um, or, or this or that happened in a mission trip or some of the things, then just praise God. We just give God the glory and the credit and we believe in the doctrine of providence that, yeah, He did it and he's, he's involved. Whether it's a sign or a wonder similar to what happened in the days of, the, of, the, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or the apostles, now that's a little bit different. And it's worth talking about, I think. But I don't know that we're going to come to a resolution. Um, I don't know that in the end we're going to be able to say that these kinds of signs and wonders uh, do or do not happen uh, anymore. But we tried to work through a definition. Grudem gave us this definition, which doesn't really float my boat, but uh, a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Uh, and so that's what he gave us as a definition. We looked at some other definitions, including Augustine, an event which runs counter to the observed processes of nature. I made a few comments about the fact that there is uh, a, a natural way that God tends to work or a usual way that God tends to work uh, in, in the physical world so much we wouldn't necessarily want to call them laws of nature, but we'd want to say this is God's, it seems, his commitment to work in this way so that there can be therefore kind of a, a canvas on which are painted these miracles or a backdrop uh, so that we can compare them. And we looked at some cases in the Old Testament in which um, the ordinary way of doing things was set up as a backdrop for an unusual action. The fact that uh, Moses, for example, said, if these men die in the ordinary way, then you know God hasn't sent me. But if something totally unusual happens and the ground opens up and they fall in and die, then you'll know that God sent me. And as soon as he gets done speaking, the, the ground opens up. So that, that is a really remarkable thing. If it had happened the next day, it would still have been a miracle. But the, the, the incredible timing of it just all the more confirmed Moses' words. So we talked about these things. We talked about the central Old Testament miracle, which would be uh, the Exodus. 
Um, some might say that Genesis 1, creation of the universe, would be the central Old Testament miracle. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute the fact. Clearly, this is a, an act of direct intervention and power by God. But uh, having accepted that and gone beyond that, then we would say that the, the Exodus, and it's not just one miracle, there's, it's just a whole era, really, of miracles. Uh, the fact that manna was on the ground for 40 years was a daily miracle. could not be explained humanly. Uh, they did take it for granted and actually got to the point where they grumbled against it. You remember that story, don't you? Complaining about manna, sick of it. And so God... <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing thing. I thought about that about maybe six months ago, and I began, it occurred to me the reason they were eating manna for 40 years is that they didn't believe him enough to enter the promised land. It's only meant for a short time. And they would have, you know, they would have just ate, eaten it for a very short time and then entered in, and eaten in the land of milk and honey, and it would have been plenty to eat there, but instead they had to disbelieve God. So fine, your penalty, and we frequently actually in our family use uh, eating things as a form of discipline, you know? <laughs> peanut butter for dinner and things like that. Um, yeah, we're cold and hard that way. But anyway, um, God did that that time. You get manna for 40 years. And then they complained and God sent poisonous snakes, as you remember, and it ended up being a great picture of Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And so it's an amazing picture. But I, uh, the only point I'm making here is it was just a whole era of miracles, just one after the other, the time of Moses. And then also the time of Joshua as they entered the promised land and uh, you know, saw the walls of a mighty city just fall down after they walked around them. It really bothers me, by the way, when people try to find naturalistic explanations for miracles, like uh, that, that Joshua and the army hit a resonance frequency in the wall after the, as they were shouting and blowing a trumpet. My goodness, uh, the kinds of things you hear. But uh, definitely miracle done and uh, other miracles as well. And then there were uh, you know, times of, of miracles at other times in Israel's history. Elijah and Elisha did great miracles, as we discussed, the time of Daniel. Uh, more miracles of knowledge than anything else, although Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's deliverance from the fiery furnace, a great miracle, a great display, and also Daniel from the lion's den. Uh, another thing that bothers me, this is my night for pet peeves. I hate it when children's books show these lions being really friendly to Daniel. I mean, remember that? Yeah. Have you ever seen that kind of artwork? It just bothers me. They're just like big kitty cats. And they're just, and he's there with his eyes. One of our books, he's, he's got his arms around the lions. They spent the night together. They were just talking all night. These, I mean, this is not accurate. You remember that the, those that accused Daniel falsely didn't even make it to the ground of the pit. The lions ripped them to shreds. Instead, God sent an angel and protected uh, Daniel and kept the, the lions away. So, at any rate, these are the ears of miracles. But there was nothing in the Old Testament to compare with the miracles that were wrought through Jesus Christ. It was just a river of signs and wonders through Christ. John the Baptist did no miracles. He was a, he was a, a prophet and he came to point the way. And it said very clearly that John performed no signs. But Jesus... Uh, just one miracle after another. Uh, they were central. The miracles were central to Christ's mission. Obviously, they were. Because Christ entered the world, God in the flesh, through a miracle. The uh, incarnation was accomplished through the virgin birth. And so the fact that God became man was a miracle. And then certainly the end of his earthly ministry, uh, his crucifixion and his miraculous resurrection. So from the, his, and then definitely his ascension into heaven, a miracle. So from the beginning to the end of his life, the beginning to the end of his, of his ministry, there were miracles. 
These miracles attested to Christ's person and nature, as we discussed last time. And they were promote, they promoted and were a basis for faith in Christ. Jesus challenged his disciples directly. Believe on the basis of the signs and wonders themselves. He says that. And so this is a valid ground for faith. That's why they were given. Uh, however, they did not guarantee faith. Many Jews received the benefits of miracles without being um, personally converted to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus kind of sums this whole thing up uh, at the end of, of Matthew chapter 12 when he uh, says, after they ask for a sign, you remember that, they ask for a miracle, a sign uh, to, uh, to trust in him, and not that they would trust in him. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says this. He says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll go back to the home I left. And when it goes back, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. And then it says, I'll, I'll go and take seven other spirits. And it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And the final condition of that man's worse than the first. That's how it will be, Jesus said, with this generation. Very interesting statement. He zeroes in on a single individual, a man, who's demon-possessed. The demon is driven out and then comes back. And what does he find? He finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. What does that mean? Unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. What is it? Say again. The demons aren't there. The house is in good order. It's cleaned up. That's right. But God isn't there either, and that's the key. It's unoccupied. When you come to faith in Christ, you become occupied by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Actually, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, come and live within you. And so, basically, Jesus said, I drove the demons out of Israel. He said, that's how it will be with this generation. But they're coming back. And in the end, it's going to be worse than it was before I came because this house is unoccupied. unoccupied. Remember what he says at the end of Matthew 23, after his sevenfold woe to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he leaves the temple. What does he mean when he says your house is left desolate? What does desolate mean? There's nothing there. It is unoccupied, right? Because Jesus has left. And he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Matthew 24, he talks about the abomination of what? Desolation. The abomination of emptiness. There's nothing there. What comes in? Well, I, I interpret that at least to mean the Romans come in and they set up a desecration in the temple. All right, it could also refer to the end of the world as well in foreshadowing. But the fact of the matter is, Israel is unoccupied, but swept clean and put in order. It's all tidied up, right? It's been healed, it's been pampered and cared for by a river of miracles from Jesus, but unconverted, unconverted. And so the end is going to be worse. So just because you had a miracle done to you didn't mean you were going to heaven. Not at all. So that's what we talked about last time. Now, after Christ came the apostolic age and the miracles that Jesus did uh, were in some degree, I would say, in some degree, conferred also to the apostles. We see the, uh, the beginning of this even during the time of Jesus' uh, ministry. As we saw in Matthew 10, those of you that were here when I was preaching, he called the 12 apostles to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits 
and to perform every sign and wonder among the people. So they, they, had, they had all of the, the uh, a sampling, let's say, a portion of Christ's power. And they went out and they were able to do miracles. Remember, they came back and they reported to Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're just thrilled about this. It must have been exciting to drive out the demons and they go. And Jesus said, uh, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So in Jesus' way of thinking, it's far greater to be a child of God than to be able to do a miracle here on earth. Far greater. How little do we prize what Christ has done for us? Isn't that something? In Christ's way of thinking, the greatest thing that could ever happen to you is to have your name written in heaven to be a child of God, to be going to heaven. You can't have anything better than that. You have everything you could ever want or need. But the apostles also had, it seems, the ability to do some of Jesus' miracles. Now, there seemed to be a, di a difference or a distinction but uh, in terms of, of degree and kind, Jesus would have whole huge communities coming and he is healing them all. Drives out the spirits with a word. But at the same time, Jesus acknowledges that the miracles, the signs that he's been doing, they will do and greater works than these will they do because he goes to the Father. Now, how do you understand that when Jesus says, greater works will you do? How do you, how do you understand that? What do you think? Say again. More will be saved. So it could be that greater in number uh, or it could tie into salvation. Other thoughts on what does it mean when Jesus said, you will do even greater works than I've been doing because I go to the Father. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. Yeah. I really believe that's the key. Uh, the key is in Jesus' phrase, because I go to the Father. And in those, ver in those chapters, every time he says that, he's, tie it's, he's tying it to the coming of the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom he will send. He said, if I don't go, he won't come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so what that meant was that you had the immediate power and presence of Christ everywhere an apostle went. And, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go ahead. I was getting ready to say Christ confined uh, his ministry to a small geographical area, whereas the apostles and those who came after spread out throughout the entire world. That's right. That's right. So I think you could really focus at least on this, that the coming of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost and anything that came after, Jesus said at least, it was a greater work. Because then, remember uh, what happened in the day of Pentecost. They um, uh, said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus didn't do that. He healed people, but he didn't give, give anyone the gift of the Holy Spirit because it was before Pentecost. He hadn't gone to the Father yet. And so the, the Spirit hadn't come yet in that sense. So I think that's a, a one way to understand greater works than these will you do. But at least this much is the case. You read the book of Acts and there's miracles all over the place. The apostles are doing miracles and miracles. Yes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so it's almost a given that 
this kind of power would come with them. But when it's done through an actual human being who's just like everybody else, mm. they take note that they were with Jesus because yeah. they're not. <coughs> Quite possible. Quite possible. So I think there's a lot of different ways to come at that statement that Jesus makes, that you will do greater works than these. Um, but the question comes, and we're going to kind of work on this tonight, is the you that he's speaking to just the apostles? Or, is, or does it represent all the church? Does it represent us? Can we read ourselves into that? That's really a question, isn't it? And it's really pretty hard to answer. Uh, we're going to work on it and, and try to figure out. But let's at least look at some aspects of the apostolic ministry. On page 2 there in Acts 3, you have this healing. And Peter said, you remember this is a man sitting, uh, a very very famous, I guess, beggar who would sit at the temple and beg from people. And uh, he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple at the time of prayer. And uh, he uh, wanted money from them. And you remember what they said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, why does this surprise you? That's one of the most amazing statements you're going to find in the Bible. You have to kind of pause and, and realize just how striking that is. Why is that a surprising statement that Peter makes? Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? What strikes you about that statement? But in Peter's way of thinking, he doesn't understand why they should be surprised. I, he just, what did you say, Chris? I didn't hear what you I said. I was saying much the same, that this is a very surprising thing to have happened. That's right. And then he says something very important, very, very profound. I've thought about it many, many times. Okay, because you know, I've wrestled with this issue of miracles and, and power and all that, and, and I frequently come to the fact there must be some deficiency in me, some deficiency in the church. And, and what Peter says is, uh, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? And then he says, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? What is Peter saying there? What's, what point is he making about this miracle? It is not us. This wasn't generated because we're so holy. Realize who is talking now. This is Peter who denied knowing Christ three times just a short time before this. And so he knows very acutely his own sinfulness. And so he's very humble about this. There's nothing in me that did this. But rather it is God who is exalting his servant Jesus is what he says. He's exalting Christ through us. It's not by our power and it's not by our godliness that this man is walking now. Very important to keep that in mind. Keep forgetting that we're really talking. Uh, that's exactly right. 
we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. And the center of the kingdom is the king. Is there any shame in a servant asking a king for something the king not granting it? Of course not. That's what kings do. Our king is just more generous than most kings. They're good at saying no to things. They'd say it all the time. Right. That's right. That's right. So I think, and I'm actually, I'm appreciate, I appreciate you, Janet, bringing that up because uh, that's where I'm going to end up at the whole end of this evening. Because if you look in Acts 4, for example, take a minute and look there, um, and you'll just see the way that they prayed. And um, I'm just choosing this as an opportune moment um, to bring it up. But in Acts chapter 4, um, you know, they have, they're, they're just. It's just a remarkable time of prayer because Peter and John were arrested for healing this man. And uh, it's really an odd thing to be arrested for healing. And, and I think even the Sanhedrin felt it was odd. And so finally, they just kind of didn't know what to do with them and just released them. What can we do? They've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it much as we'd like to. I mean, they're in the business of denying miracles. That's what they did with Jesus. Didn't they deny the central miracle that's evidence, the sign of Jonah? They denied it. They said that the guards were asleep. They paid him off. All right, so they're in the business of denying miracles. They're killing Lazarus, you know. <laughs> I mean, we can't listen to his testimony. We'll kill him. All right, so they're saying, here's this, the Peter and John, they've done an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. But uh, let's warn these people, you know, not to speak anymore in this name. So then they're released and they go back to the believers and they have a wonderful time of prayer. Now, if you look uh, at what they say here, in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, that's a great prayer meeting, isn't it? What kind of, what requests do they make? What's their first request that they make of the Lord? That's right. In the face of their threats, in the face of what they're threatening us with, give us boldness anyway. Oh, that's a great request, isn't it? Boldness for what? Why do they need boldness? They're afraid, but they had a mission to do, didn't they? Jesus had given them a mission. They had to preach the gospel. So they needed boldness to preach the gospel. It's the very thing that Paul prays for for himself in Ephesians 6. Grant that I might have courage to proclaim fearlessly the mystery of the gospel. That's what he wants. So he wants boldness to preach. Okay? I believe that this is the point also of the second request. What's the second request? Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Why? 
for the preaching of the gospel. I believe that. It was to support the proclamation of the, of the, of the gospel primarily, although we would add some other things that show God's compassion and mercy and other things. But, you know, they, I think we had to pray like this. Why not? Do we have any commands in Scripture that would cause us not to pray this kind of prayer? You know, I am not a cessationist. What I mean is I don't believe that you can make a biblical case for the end of miracles. I think you, I, I've heard it try, attempted and I just have the hardest time doing it. They, what, the way they do it is they link it completely to the apostles. They say that miracles were done only by the apostles and when the apostolic age was over, then the miracles were over. But what I'm saying is at least I think we should be praying this kind of prayer, pray, praying that the Lord would in a mighty way give His servants, us, boldness to preach the gospel and also that He would stretch out His hand to heal and perform signs and wonders. I don't see any reason we can't pray that prayer. I don't see any reason we can't. Now, let's keep looking. Uh, Romans, uh, this is on the bottom of page 2. Romans 15, 18 and 19. Uh, it says there, and this is talking about the miracles being a part of the apostolic preaching of the gospel. That's kind of where I'm getting at here. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So what does he say there? What is Paul talking about? How does he describe his miracle? I mean, his um, his ministry. What is Romans fifteen eighteen and nineteen teaching you about about Paul's ministry? He ministered to the Gentiles. Okay, how did he do it? through the power of signs and wonders. Do you see that? So God granted also to Paul, as one untimely born, as an apostle, who came along later, the power to do signs and wonders. And he preached the gospel thoroughly from Jerusalem all the way around to what's modern Yugoslavia. A long, long stretch. And uh, he proclaimed the gospel with the powers of signs and wonders. Miracles were a part of the New Testament church life. The day of Pentecost came. They're all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So this is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the point we're making here is that miracles are part of the church life. Well, many people believe this moment here is the birth of the church, the beginning of the church as such, the New Testament church, the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came in a mighty way. And so therefore, if that is true, then the, the church was born in a miracle, all right, which was the, uh, the coming of the Spirit through this sign of the ability to speak in languages. And I think that's the way I definitely interpret it here, whether that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 or not. It's very clear that people from all these geographical locations could understand the Word of God preached in their own language when Peter got up there. So it was clearly an understandable language. And I can, I can attest to you that this wasn't done for me when I was studying Greek, Hebrew, Japanese, or any of the other languages that I've attempted to study. I did not get this miracle, all right, which is the instant ability to speak in a foreign tongue. Uh, and that was a miracle. Then in Galatians 3.5, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? What does that tell you? What does that teach you about the New Testament church? Yeah, by grace. But there's, there's miracles going on. This is, just a, this is a Gentile church in the middle of Asia Minor. It's a long distance now from Jerusalem and they go and preach the gospel and God apparently is working miracles among you, not by law, but by grace, uh, by believing what they heard. 
So the power of the Spirit was there to do miracles. Do you see it? Galatians 3, 5. It's part of the church life there. And then Hebrews 2, 4. Uh, God also testified to it, the it there being the gospel, I believe, the new covenant. God testified to the gospel by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so here's the church of the Hebrews. We don't know where this was, but uh, uh, Jewish people who are claiming to be Christian, making a profession of faith in Christ, they came to faith in Christ by the power of miracles. They saw signs and wonders. To me, I think this is probably would be very helpful in, in, in enabling us to understand Hebrews 6 in which they have tasted uh, of the Holy Spirit and, and of the powers of the coming age and yet have fallen away. You see, I think what it means is that they were involved in a community where the miracles were done by the power of the Spirit. They were, they in, were involved in that. They tasted of it. They experienced it. Maybe they themselves were even healed as people were healed in, through Jesus' ministry, but they were not converted. And so they saw everything that God does in a local church to the nth degree and still fell away. So there's no way to bring them back to repentance. There's no way. So Hebrews 6, so I, I really think that that's very, very important. The fact that they came to faith in Christ through a display of miracles. You're going to see the same thing also in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, uh, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. B.B. Warfield, who is uh, a cessationist, definitely a strong cessationist, at, at any rate, at least, he wrote this. Everywhere, the apostolic church was marked out uh, as itself a gift from God by showing forth the possession of the Spirit in appropriate works of the Spirit, miracles of healing and miracles of power, miracles of knowledge, whether in the form of prophecy or the discerning of spirits, miracles of speech, whether the gifts of tongue or their interpretation. The apostolic church was characteristically a miracle-working church. I think that it really wouldn't be hard to prove that. I mean, I just We've only looked at a, a, f a few verses that we could use to demonstrate this. The apostolic church was definitely or characteristically a miracle-working church. Now, what was the purpose of the miracles? Why were they there? Um, now, I've already described why Christ did miracles, so all those things that I said last week would again be true. Um, you know, at the very least, we're going to say that they are a display of God's nature. All right, God uh, shows His compassion. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So every time that God heals somebody, it's an act of His compassion. We forget, I think, we really do forget that the wages of sin is death and that we deserve to die the moment we sin. I mean, it's, it's easy to forget that, isn't it? I, I remember being kind of jarred when, when David confessed his sin and Nathan said to him, you will not die. Well, that's a gift from God. That's grace. He deserved to drop dead on the spot just like King Herod did when he blasphemed and, and called down worship on himself. It's, he deserved it, but he didn't die. And ne so neither did you when you committed sin. For all of you have sinned and so have I. And yet God is gracious and allows us to continue living. I think it's a remarkable thing. But God, uh, how much more then for God to look at a sinner and heal them of a disease that could take them out of this world? To reverse it and to heal them an act of compassion. But there are other things that we want to zero in here. First, I think it would be to authenticate the message of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, they went to a town or to a, a village or whatever and they began to preach the gospel. Why should the people listen to them? 
Why would they, why would they give them a hearing at all? And, and so I, I think there was a sense of, of the authority of the message, a sense of the seriousness of the moment, that they, um, that they were preaching a message from God and the fact was testified to by the signs and wonders, as we already read in Hebrews 2.4. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Look at Acts 14. Turn in your Bibles, actually, if you would, so that you can see it more in context. One of the arguments against miracles, or even this aspect of miracles, namely that the miracles are given to authenticate the preaching of the gospel, is that it undercuts preaching and that preaching is the thing that God has ordained whereby people come to Christ. Faith comes by hearing the proclaimed message, Romans 10. And so as they look at that, Romans 10, they say, well, you don't need miracles. All you need is a clear proclamation of the gospel. And if you hear and believe, you'll be saved. I don't deny that. Many people come to faith in Christ with no miracles at all. Many. I'm one. Now, the conversion itself is a miracle. I could easily argue that. Regeneration by the Spirit is a miracle. But what I'm saying is these kinds of signs and wonders, I would guess that probably the majority, if not all of you, came to faith in Christ without this kind of a display, miraculous display. But the argument against the miracles is that they undercut the, the importance of preaching, that preaching is the thing. You know, and Paul says, I, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And, and the, the Galatians, he says, before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. It's just a simple, clear proclamation of Christ crucified and risen. And that's what converts people. Well, I don't think anybody would say, any biblical, you know, biblically accurate person would say that miracles convert anybody. But we all would say that it's the preaching of the gospel and the hearing with faith that saves. But yet, look at this. Look at Acts 14, 1 through 3. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Stop there. Don't you see in verse 3 an echo of the earlier prayer we read in Acts 4? What did they pray in Acts 4? Give your servants what? Boldness to preach and stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs. Isn't this a direct answer to prayer? Among others. But I mean, Acts 14.3, you could just connect to the prayer that was prayed in Acts 4. They prayed for boldness and they prayed for miracles. What do they get in Acts 14.3? Boldness and miracles. Okay? Now, what I want to point out here is that you could never say there was anything defective in Paul and Barnabas' proclamation ministry. They were weak preachers and therefore God needed to help them. Not at all. Actually, the text gives us quite the opposite impact. They spoke so effectively, they so spoke that a large number believed. It was a very powerful proclamation of the gospel. Very clear exposition of Christ and Him crucified. Why then the miracles? If preaching is all you need, why the miracles? Yes. Um, Andy, this reminds me very much of gospel for Asia, a movement in India for native missionaries. You can support one for $30 a month. Hmm. And uh, uh, there, 
the reports back in the Sin magazine are constantly this sort of thing, where they perform miracles of healing mm-hmm. you know, by praying for sick people, mm-hmm. people that have been going to witch doctors and are getting worse and worse, and suddenly they're miraculously healed. Mm-hmm. And this gives them a chance to present the gospel. Yes. And this is their inroad to yep. uh, spreading the gospel. That's right. Yes. So I, what I'm saying, the point I'm making is that the argument that preaching is all you need falls flat here in Acts 14, 1 through 3. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I'm not denying that, that, that if God so chooses, people can be regenerated apart from any miracles, as we just said. But he does the miracles here, and we couldn't imagine there'd be anything lacking in the proclamation here through Paul and Barnabas. The text says exactly the opposite, and yet God comes alongside. Why then can't we ask him to do it today? Why not? We can and should, I think. And so, what Let I'm me ask a question yeah, sure. if I might. Yeah. Um, what was going on during the uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, during the Great Awakenings, and during the preaching of Charles Spurgeon and, and the others? Uh, were there miracles? I don't know enough about history of that, those periods of time to uh, recognize whether there were miracles or not. Yes. I, I seem to understand that it was mostly a proclamation of the word. Well, it depends how you define miracle as usual, okay? Um, but when you see the effects of the preaching in such an overwhelming way, um, there were just myriad signs of God's power through conversion, through, through things that would happen. Um, there were outward and visible signs. So much so and so strong was this that that Edwards had to write a treatise on it on, on what are and are not actual signs of a work of the Spirit of God. Because there was just so much going on at that time. The, the revival itself was considered to be a miracle, which is the very thing that Charles Finney dis- denied and disagreed. He said, he said revivals are not miracles. They're human things. They're things we do. If we do the right thing, God will do his part. That's so false. I can't tell you how allergic to, to, to that I am. I mean, it was a miracle. The first great awakening was a miracle. And I believe that the things that happened around the second great awakening were also a miracle, an act of God. Finney was wrong. He's right now. He's right now. But, um, you know, he's got his doctrine worked out. And I'm going to get my doctrine fixed too when I see Christ face to face. Um, I tell you what, if I knew where my doctrine was wrong, I'd fix it now, but uh, I don't. But all I'm saying is that I, I think we can't bank too heavily on Romans 10 and say it's only the preaching, we don't need the miracles, um, because Paul, Paul wrote it. Paul wrote Romans, and the miracles came alongside, and God testified to it. There's no hint in the text here that it needs to happen. I mean, people are already converted in verse 1 and 2. You know, uh, that's what I'm saying. In verse 1, there, there's such an effective preaching of the gospel. And so the miracles didn't, weren't necessary to getting these people saved, but God does it anyway. And I think we ought to just uh, trust Him and ask Him. Now, uh, as was already hinted, Landis hinted at it, I added this one to Grudem's outline here. One of the purposes of the miracles was just draw a crowd, frankly. I mean, <laughs> to get a bunch of people together who are, are softened and, and ready and interested. I mean, and it happens again and again in the book of Acts. A miracle's done and everybody comes and looks and they're amazed. A, the clearest example of this is in Acts 8.6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Isn't that a clincher? I mean, that seems to be exactly what the miracle did for the proclamation of the gospel. They came, they listened, and they paid close attention. They gave the gospel a hearing. That's all. And a uh, key thing is Philip. Who is Philip? 
Philip was one of the what? Seven, what we call deacons, although the word's not used in Acts 6. But he's one of the original seven that was there to wait on tables uh, for the um, Greek-speaking widows. God enables him to do miracles. What does that tell you? He's not a what? He's not an apostle. That's kind of important, isn't it? It wasn't just the apostles doing miracles. That ends up being kind of a key keystone to the argument against the apostolic age approach. That's all. All right. Why else? To bear witness to the fact that the kingdom of God has come and has begun to bless their lives. Matthew 9, 6, Jesus said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so Jesus links the invisible spiritual benefit of forgiveness of sins to an outward and visible sign of healing so that you may know I can forgive sins. I think the same motive would be there for the apostolic preaching as well. So that you can know that this message has power to forgive sins. Look what it also can do or what the God of this message can do. Heal this man. All right? So that the kingdom of God is here. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, said Jesus, then the kingdom of God is here now. It's upon you. And so uh, the signs and wonders were signs of the kingdom. Also, as we mentioned, to help and show mercy to those in need. Um, all of these you can read, just compassion. It's a mark of compassion. Number four, uh, to remove hindrances to people's ministries. Uh, this is a clear example here. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Uh, he touched her hand, the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. So the fever was a hindrance to her ministry, a hindrance to the ministry, sickness. Um, far greater hindrance to ministry would be death, wouldn't you agree? Very hard to minister when you're dead. Actually, David makes this point again and again in the Psalms. Who praises you from the grave? There's nothing more I can do once I'm dead. So Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. You remember? She had a ministry of of helping people and assisting and, and repairing clothes and making things. Uh, a, a kind of a servant, a quiet servant ministry in the background. And all of the widows stood around kind of weeping and showing Peter the things that she used to make for them. And they were very sad. You remember this. And so Peter goes in and prays and Dorcas is raised uh, from the dead. And so uh, clearly a, and a great encouragement to the church there and a tremendous removal of a obstacle for Dorcas so that she can continue to minister. Yeah, there's no ministry is unimportant. Dorcas was not a, a, you know, an upfront leader. She was a behind the scenes encourager and uh, blessing and so Peter raises her from the dead also to bring glory to God um, in John 2.11 uh, you know Jesus performed a miracle at Cana and thus revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him and number six to give needed information or resources for ministry this happened a lot especially through this guy Agabus um, Agabus would come and he would prophesy and he would predict what was going to happen and it would come true you remember he predicted, for example, that there was going to be a famine throughout the whole Roman world, similar to Joseph predicting the famine. And uh, this happened during the reign of Claudius. And so as a result, they got ready ahead of time, just like happened in Joseph's day. They prepared ahead of time. And then uh, the prophecy that Agabus made later about, about um, Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. Uh, he comes and takes his belt and binds Paul with it and says, in the same way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. And uh, then clearly in Acts 16, uh, this is a miracle. As they came to uh, Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. 
passing by Mycenae, they uh, uh, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing <clears throat> and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. This is one of my favorite phrases. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, that's a good conclusion based on this vision. And so they're going. This is a miraculous uh, source of information. They're asking for insight. They're asking for information. Uh, number seven, to comfort and encourage the people of God. Again, one of my favorite stories, Acts 20. Uh, Paul was going to be in one locale just for a short time, so he decided to, to preach five sermons in a row, I guess. Uh, went one after the other. Um, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I've seen this done before, although I, the rest of the story I didn't, I've never seen. But uh, I've seen this other thing. Um, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, this is a grave warning to any of you concerning falling asleep during sermons. All right? It's a great danger that occurs. Yeah, don't sit in the window and fall asleep. Yeah, so Eutychus... Uh, lost interest or fell asleep or what happened as Paul talked on and on. What a great verse. Anyway, um, so Paul went down, I'm sure, feeling at least partly responsible. Um, went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So obviously, it's a great encouragement to the church to see these kinds of miracles. And then, um, you know, there's other examples here. If you look at these seven reasons, actually eight, I think, because there's one A. As you look at each one, aren't those those opportunities still here today? I mean, don't don't we wouldn't we still desire to have a, a sharper hearing of the word, a more attentive hearing of the word, a display of God's compassion, a removal of obstacles from us so that we may minister better? You know, a form of great encouragement and strength in the ministry to see God do mighty things. We need all these things. They're all still here. God hasn't changed any. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He's always the same. And so what I would say is if these are the reasons for miracles, um, then all of them are still here today. They all obtain today. Yes, go ahead. Oh, definitely, Paul he was dead. Yeah. Aware of something there, and um, and then in Acts 14, I was just looking at it where in Lystra, where he healed the lame man, and it says Paul had fixed his gaze upon him. When he fixed his gaze upon him, saw that he had faith to be healed. Yeah. It, it would be, you know, if the Lord wants me to, or just us routinely to go to the hospital and pray over the dead, mm -hmm. then you know we should do it. Mm -hmm. But or I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see that as a general rule that they always prayed for the dead. Okay, so I actually. No, I think we should pray what it says in Acts four. Okay. 
Give your servants boldness and stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Then you keep in step with the Spirit and follow him in his leadership. And as he leads you, I believe Paul was led to raise this young man from the dead. But you have to realize, I mean, the ministry went went on a long time. I mean, Paul preached the gospel or it was preached from Jerusalem all the way around to Yugoslavia. How long do you think that took? A long time. Do you think anybody in in the world died during that time? How about any people in the church? Lots of them. The wages of sin is death and God is not going to remove that penalty. And every single person who is raised from the dead in the Bible is dead again today. Still dead. And so it's just a resuscitation, a really just a temporary extension of life like Hezekiah got. So God is not removing the death penalty. It's the final enemy, 1 Corinthians 15. So I think what I would do is, no, we're not going to have a general ministry of resurrection from the dead. Jesus didn't even have that. You have to imagine many people died every day in Palestine. But we have these signal displays of power over death that are significant, I think. They're a sign. And so that's what I would say. Now, the people who argue against the, the inclination that I'm giving you tonight, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sympathetic to their arguments as well, realize that these are all of my theological heroes that disagree with what I'm sharing tonight. I mean, all of the great reformers and all of those folks that, that went on in that, uh, you know, from that point were cessationists and believed that once the New Testament was written and the church had established itself and went on, you didn't need these kinds of things anymore. You just needed the ongoing standard ministry of the church. I, I guess all I would say is just show me the scripture. Show me how you know this from the Bible. That's all I would ask. Because they would say sola scriptura from the Bible alone. We're going to make our arguments and they can't make it from scripture. That's all I'm saying. Just note that they can't make that argument from Scripture, just like infant baptism. You can't make the argument from Scripture. It's from other places that they make their argument. Now, were miracles restricted to the apostles? What's the answer? No. (laughs) But they led the way. No question about it. It was more than anything the apostles that tended to do the uh, miracles. The apostles were heavily involved. Acts 2.43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Do you notice that? Okay, so I think at that point the implication would be that the laity or the people who weren't apostles didn't do miracles. I think that's a logical assumption from Acts 2.43. Acts 5.12 and 15 and 16 says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. So these are the kind of miracles the apostles did. However, miracles seem to be part of the life of the churches as a whole, as we already noted. In 1 Corinthians 12, it lists workers of miracles among the gifts of the Spirit. Galatians 3.5 says that God works miracles among you by His Spirit. And then some non-apostles did miracles. We've already mentioned Philip, but Stephen also did miracles. Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power and did wonders and miraculous signs among the people, Acts 6, 8. So, uh, you know, the, these were non-apostles and they were doing uh, signs and wonders. Now, there's a discussion here in Grudem on this issue of signs of an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. In the NAS it says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, cessationists, those people that uh, are going to say or hold to a strong view uh, of the end of these miracles would point to this as a key verse because they would say that the miracles were the signs of the apostles. And when the apostles were gone, then the miracles were gone. 
they would argue that the signs in order to be signifying would have to be rare. In other words, they'd acknowledge that Stephen and, and Philip were not apostles and did miracles. But if everybody and anybody's doing miracles, then how could it be a marking sign of an apostle? Do you see what I'm saying? If you and me and, and, and brother this and sister that, if everybody's doing miracles, then it wouldn't be an identifier for an apostle like it was for Paul. And that's a good argument. But I don't think it's enough to say that have a strong cessationist position and say once the apostles were gone, then the miracles ended as well. Um, Grudem believes that the signs of an apostle in this verse are not the miracles themselves, for Paul says the signs of an apostle were done with miracles, implying that they are two different things. Uh, you can read through this list that he gives us here um, if you want. Um, I'm going to skip this Geisler thing and just go on from here. One of the things... Yes, Brevard. Brevard. No, they really didn't. Such a great team. Yeah. And you know, like uh, even Kerry went out to the mission field, one of the first great pioneers, and mm -hmm. he had a problem with Calvinism. You know, they had a problem with Calvinism then. I guess I, I think sort of like Janet was probably saying that in this country, and I don't understand this, but maybe it's in the, in the uh, providence of God, in this country, we've heard the gospel so much that maybe we don't need the miracles. But I think she was also saying that we do have a lot of little miracles, not that mm -hmm. one's better, bigger than the other or better than the other. Mm -hmm. But I know there's some big miracles in this country. I know my father was involved in, well, maybe not a big one, but a miracle years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, in other countries, I know and we all know that there are many, many miracles, even in the raising of the dead. Right. Or people coming back to life in China. I've just mm -hmm. been reading about it. You know how people uh, saw the miracles, and they're so far removed from mm -hmm. Christianity in an atheistic yeah. country and this type type thing, like Buddhist country. Uh, do they need a miracle? Mm -hmm. Like I think in Acts. Yeah, and uh, see, for me, trying to understand why there aren't as many miracles here in in the West and North America as there are in the other part of the world you realize you're sailing into uncharted territory without really scriptural permission. Um, in other words, we can't say it's because we're so sinful and we don't believe at all. Well, if we didn't believe, there wouldn't be any Christians here. I mean, we're justified by faith. Uh, and so we, if there's no faith over here, there's no Christians over here. So clearly, there's, there's believers. But I think there are things we can say, namely our scientific and uh, uh, you know, westernized worldview, I think makes it harder for us to believe. Um, I think we tend to first give credit to the medicine rather than to God for healing. You know, and, and we just have this tendency. Let's go on. In number, on page 7, it talks about the limits to the miracles. Those with miracle-working power sometimes could not heal. For example, Paul could not heal himself. Remember, he had that thorn in the flesh, and three times he asked the Lord um, to remove it from him, and God said, no, basically, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I've actually heard it said by some faith-type people, name it and claim it types, um, who believe that, that healing is part of Christ's atonement, and if you're not healed, you didn't have faith, which is unbelievably devastating. Can you imagine having cancer and then getting hold of that bad doctrine and say, not only am I losing my body, I'm losing my soul. I have no faith. I, can't. I mean, it's devastating. It's terrible. But I've heard them say that Paul himself lacked faith in this case. 
Can you believe that? That's why the thorn wasn't removed. God wanted to remove it, but Paul lacked faith. He didn't trust God enough. That's not what the account said. That's not what it says at all. Paphroditus and Trophimus are examples of people who are left sick. Second uh, Timothy 4.20 Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Well, what would you do that for, Paul? Why didn't you heal him? Well, I'm sure he prayed for him. We have to believe he prayed for him. James says, if there's anyone sick, call the elders of the church to anoint him with oil and pray over him and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. We have to believe that Paul prayed for him, but God didn't will to heal him. God did not will to heal him. And the reason is that sickness is part of death. Remember what it says in the book of Revelation. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? The old order of things has passed away. Well, what does that mean? The old order of things has passed away. We're living in it now. This is the old order of things where there is death and there is mourning and there is crying and there is pain. Is God going to take it away? Yes, but not now. At the end of the world, he will remove it. Not now. That's what the book of Revelation says. Now we just kind of make it through, don't we? Even these signs and wonders, we just kind of made it through. Because Lazarus was raised from the dead, did he not get sick a year and a half later or, or stub his toe or you know, have an accident? He died. he died. I mean, that's the greatest insult to the body you can find, death. So at any rate, he died, yes. So death is part of this age and we should not be thinking that miracles will be a lifting up of that and bringing us directly into a new age. Not at all. We're still going to suffer. There'll still be difficulties. Um, anyway, were miracles restricted to the apostles? Uh, Grudem says no. Um, and I don't think they were. Uh, clearly they weren't. I think they continued on after that. Now, one caveat uh, is false miracles. False miracles. All right? And this is something we have to understand. You remember Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8? He sees the great signs and wonders that Philip the deacon, so to speak, one of the seven, did. And what did he do? You remember? He offered him some money for it. He said, wow, you got a better thing going than I've got, you know? Uh, how about if I give you, you know, and he said, your money, he actually offered Peter and, and John the money. Um, and he said, your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, he said, because your heart is not right with God. Repent is what he told him. So here's a guy that wanted the miraculous power for the sake of the power, you know, to do the miracles, to do the display. You know, uh, there's a lot of examples of false miracles. Pharaoh's magicians work false miracles. Moses warned ahead of time that miracles themselves were no certain proof that a prophet is from God. Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces you, uh, to you a mirac miraculous sign of wonder, and if the sign of wonder of which he has spoken takes place, did you notice that? If it takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to his words, to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is an unbelievably devastating thing. All right? The reason is that Jesus came doing signs and wonders and preaching so they thought a different God. And they were just following instructions. Deuteronomy 13 said, stone him, basically. Try to but we can't stone him because the Romans have taken that away, so we'll hand him over to the Romans. Yes, but he wasn't preaching a different God. He was fulfilling Scripture. They needed to be right on this one. They lost their soul as a result by, by doing what they thought was following God. The fact is, there, it is possible that miracles can be done by workers, uh, workers of iniquity, by the devil. The uh, Antichrist himself will come at the end 
uh, top of page 8, false uh, Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible, which it isn't. But uh, that's what they, the, the goal is to deceive even them. Second Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they re refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so also three verses in Revelation show that false miracles will be a part of that final era of human history. It's going to be these false miracles. Now, Grudem gives us these, these conclusions. The power of God is greater than the power of Satan to work the miraculous signs. The identity of these workers of false miracles is always known through their denial of the gospel, the spirit of Antichrist. There is no indication anywhere in Scripture that genuine Christians with the Holy Spirit in them will work false miracles. Therefore, if we see people with creditable professions of orthodox faith in Christ perform miracles, we should simply praise God for them and for God's great work through them. I mean, isn't that what you end up with? I said this last week. What are you going to do with these stories and testimonies from the mission field? Somebody who believes in the Trinity and in justification by faith alone and the gospel and all the things that you do and also add to it stories of miracles that they've seen with their own eyes. What are you going to do with that? You're going to say amen, praise God. I'm grateful for it. I'm thankful for it. Brevard, you asked me to uh, recount a bunch of miracles and I've got, I've got a listing of actual miracle accounts that I've read but it's uh, 7.36 right now. So uh, maybe next time I will read some at the beginning of the... Huh? <laughs> it's the only one I have, but uh, at any rate, uh, just amazing. Uh, God uses dreams to bring Muslims to Christ. Probably a quarter of the Muslims who come to faith in Christ come to Christ as a result of visions and dreams. Amazing, over and over, all over the world. I mean, what would it take to take somebody out of a Muslim family into personal faith in Christ? Incredible, and God does these signs and wonders. Many, many stories. Maybe we'll get into some next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had tonight to look, and I thank you, O Lord, for the great power that you have displayed, Father, uh, through time. And I thank you for our brothers and sisters that have gone before us that give testimonies of your healing and miracle-working power. Father, we should not seek miracles in and of themselves or for themselves, but rather, first, that they would glorify you and display your nature and your character. And secondly, that they would substantiate and uh, give power to believe the gospel and authenticate its message. And third is a display of your compassion to your people. Uh, Lord, I pray that these things would happen. And I ask now with my brothers and sisters that uh, you would move us as a church, at First Baptist Church, to a new level of faith and trust in you where we confidently ask you for healing and for you to give boldness to your servants and stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your servant Jesus. But then realize that it is up to you, the King, to make a decision in what you will do in each matter. Father, we thank you for these things and for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.